So I eased off the driveway. It's about a quarter mile down to the to the road there, you know. It was a cloudy, cool day in the spring, and none of the kids were playing outside. Beware, beware, the bully goat grim. Nobody better not meth with him. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you every time that you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. We're going to hear some favorites of mine today. You'll hear from Laura Persian Rayner, a story called The Haunted House. And you'll hear from Joe Harrington, the cowboy poet, The Ride, from a collection of cowboy poetry called Shalako. And you're going to hear a conversation with a great tall tale teller, Bill Lepp, too, in our conversation with a friend Today. But first, we're going to hear a story from Michael Reno Harrell. Now, this story is going to bring back for you memories of your first bicycle. It for sure brings back memories of the old yellow Royce Union that was a birthday present for me and became the bike that got me all the way through elementary school. Here's Michael Reno Harrell with a piece called Bike Story. We're happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. <laughs> There are a few days in people's lives that really stand out, you know? Uh, one of those days that really stands out for me is the day I got my first pocket knife. I was eight years old, got it for my birthday, and it was sharp. And the first thing I did was cut the side off my thumb with it. And <laughs> you can see the scar right there. A couple of my weddings were memorable. Uh, <laughs> this last one, for sure, was a big was a big one. Some of you were there, but the day that really stands out to me, above all of them in my life, I think, is the Christmas I got my first bicycle. Because that means now that you have mobility, you have wheels. <laughs> Now, I'd been after my dad for a long time to get him to buy me a bicycle. But after that thing with the pocket knife, he wasn't real sure about how coordinated I was, you know. <laughs> so I started working on plans. I came up with this idea. I said, Dad, I said, I, I, I figured out how to pay for a bicycle. He said, you have? I said, yes, sir. I said, if I had a bicycle, I could get a paper wrapped, and then I could pay for a bicycle. He said, don't you have to start with the bicycle? I thought, well, I need to work on that a little more, don't I? <laughs> but sure enough, that same Christmas, I got up and walked in the living room thinking, well, I'll get some more shirts, you know. <laughs> oh, boy, a sweater. You know, I'm trying to get worked up for it. And I walked in the living room, and there was this brand-new red and white huffy bicycle, big 26-inch, sitting there under the Christmas tree. had my name on it. Now... In the part of the country where I grew up, bicycles are for riding downhills. They're for pushing uphills, see? Because back then, I had only ever seen a one three-speed bicycle, which is in, in the window of the big department store, Miller's department store down there in Knoxville. And I had no idea that 10-speed bicycles, that they even existed, see? So there, I had the big one-speed, right? <laughs> you know, with the coaster brake, you pedal backwards on it, you know? to make it stop. Well, we lived at the top of this road called Highland Drive, and it was high. 
It was about, from our house, it's about two miles down to Highway 25 down there. And, and it runs sort of down the valley there by the creek. So it was a pretty flat stretch of about three or four miles. And you could get down there and just fly up and down and actually pedal, you know. But then you had that two-mile climb back up to my house. Now, the difference in elevation in those two miles was right at 9,000 feet. <laughs> it's pretty steep. Now, when I'd ride off that road, it was gravel. The first part wasn't too steep, and, and I'd go down through there, you know, and then I'd start slowing down because the last, about the last quarter of a mile before you, you made, th there was this big turn. And, and it was real steep and rutted out. And, and I would always just get off and, and walk the bike around that curve and down to the highway because that, that was what was known as dead kid's curve. <laughs> See? And <laughs> but the more I rode, you know, I thought, you know, every time I ride to the bottom of the hill, I got to push this bicycle back up here and it weighed about six pounds more than I did. So I got to thinking, what I need to do is strip down some weight off this boy, see? So I got to looking at it there in the garage one day, and, and I went and got my dad's crescent wrench, and I took them two chrome fenders off of it. Well, I walked in the house and put them on the, on the bathroom scale, and they were 14 pounds right there, see? <laughs> and I thought, this is going to make a difference pushing that bicycle back up the hill, see? So I went out there, and I, I got serious about it. Then I took the chain guard off, had a big chrome headlight with two D-cell flashlight batteries. That was about four and a half pound right there. I jerked that thing off, throwed it over in the corner. And, and, then, and then it had a luggage rack on there big enough you could put like a steamer trunk on it and go to Niagara Falls, you know. <laughs> well, I wasn't going anywhere that I wasn't coming home that same day, so I took that off, see. I even sawed four inches off of each end of the handlebars, you know. I had that baby stripped down now, you know. And I, I got to looking at it, you know, and, and my dad pulled up in his truck there and he walked in the garage and he saw that, that pile of, of, of fenders and, and, and headlights and stuff laying there and he looked at me and he looked at that bicycle and he muttered something about, I could have bought a $5 used bicycle, you know. <laughs> He's still in that second hand mode. You remember that piano thing? <laughs> well, he just shook his head and walked on in the house. I got to looking at that bicycle all stripped down like that. And I thought, you know what that looks like right there? That looks like one of them racing motorcycles sitting there. And then I looked at it and I thought, well, I could take the kickstand off. You don't need a kickstand when you're riding. <laughs> so I took the kickstand off and I was standing there holding it and I thought, wonder how this thing would go now. So I eased off the driveway. It's about a quarter mile down to the, to the road there, you know, to Highland Drive. I got to the bottom, I was doing about 20. Well, I power slid that baby around into the road and I started to pedal. And I thought, golly, this is a lot easier than it was. Well, I started gaining speed there till the pedals, I could just, I was just barely, you know, I was cranking and I could just barely feel a little pressure. And I passed Betsy Wilson's house and I glanced over it and it went by like that right there. And I thought, I must be doing 30 now, you know. Well, I started burning down on it, and I got down in, in, my, in my best wind-cheating pose. I had my chin right down on the handlebars. I was all tucked in like that, and off down the road I went. And about a quarter of a mile before Dead Kid's Curve, see, there's this long stretch there, like I was telling you, and I got to thinking, well, now, I need to slow way down, but I'm going to ride the curve today, see. 
but I'm going to hit it at about seven miles an hour. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll ease down on the brake. Now, you don't want to just stomp that brake down, or what will happen is the back wheel will lock up on you, and you'll go into what's known as the death wobble. See, <laughs> the back end will start trying to pass the front end, you know, and you you don't want that. You don't want that. See, so I I got down like that, and, and, and you know, and, and I started pushing back on that brake. Well, it didn't feel like it was going anywhere, and I thought, I ain't slowing down. <laughs> and I looked over, and, and as I passed Terry Pendleton's house, I noticed, just glanced out of the corner of my eye, I saw her mother standing in the yard, and she had that stance. Her eyes were real big, and she was looking in my direction. She had that stance that only, only mothers can get. <laughs> she was standing there, and she had one hand with her fingers splayed like that, and she was sort of patting her chest like that, you know? <laughs> and her other hand was cupped and over her mouth like that, you know, as I went by. Well, I'm pushing back on that brake, you know, and I'm thinking, I gotta be somewhere around 60 miles an hour right here. Well, here's dead kid's curve coming up pretty quick. Well, I really start mashing on that brake and nothing's happening, you know? Took my eyes off the road just quick enough and glanced down at the sprocket there, and I, I saw a thing that stopped my heart. My right blue jean cuff was wadded up between the chain and the big sprocket on the bicycle. <laughs> you know, they say that right before a fatal accident, sometimes your entire life will flash before your eyes. I saw the third grade three times. I mean, it, it's low. And then, and then, then it was like a miracle, just like out of nowhere. Just my mind became like extremely, just like crystal clear. And somehow I flashed on this image of this page in Hot Rod magazine. It was a, it was a picture I'll never forget it of Don Garlitz in his big slingshot dragster are going across the finish line at the Winter Nationals and out behind that dragster was a big old parachute. And I thought, that's what I need, a parachute. <laughs> well, quick thinking me, I kind of I eased my right hand off that short little old handlebar and I reached up under my chin and I zipped my windbreaker down to within about three inches of the bottom. And I reached back up and I grabbed hold of that handlebar and I shut my eyes real tight and I sit upright. And sure enough, my windbreaker went full loop like that. <laughs> and three days later, on the way home from the hospital, <laughs> my mother and I were driving up Highland Drive and we were just passing Terry Pendleton's house. And her mother was standing out in the yard and she yelled, oh my golly, it's him. <laughs> well, my mother evidently didn't understand what she said and she stopped the car and she said, hey, Miss Pendleton. And Miss Penlin walked over and she looked in the car and she went, oh my gosh, I've never seen scabs that big. 
The last piece of gravel finally worked its way out of my scalp about 12 years ago. <laughs> Michael Reno Harrell with memories of bicycles. Sure bringing back memories for me. Maybe it's bringing back for you the memory of an important bike, or at least the memory of an important bike wreck. What a pleasure to hear from Michael Reno Harrell, and there's a lot more coming up. Stick around. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. Thanks for joining us on The Appleseed. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. And if you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a story called Bike Story from Michael Reno Harrell. And there's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear The Ride by Joe Harrington, a piece of cowboy poetry that you'll love to hear. Something from Laura Pershing Rayner, too. And a little Willie Claflin as well. You'll love every word. But first, here's an entry in the Radio Family Journal about an encounter with a magpie. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. When I was 13 years old, I was cast as Friedrich, the nondescript eldest son of Captain Von Trapp, in the Alpine town production of The Sound of Music. Now, the venue for the show was the beautiful American Fork Amphitheater, one of those great old stone amphitheaters built as public works projects during the Depression. And that production of The Sound of Music occurred decades and decades ago. And imagine my surprise when I answered the phone one day in a recent summer and heard Connie Gokeritz on the other end of the line. Connie was the mom of Quinn and Amy Gokeritz, who had a real live buffalo ranch in our little town, and whose house was the hub of a lot of our high school antics a million years ago. She had also played a nun in that long ago production of The Sound of Music, and Connie was calling to tell me that now, decades later, the same director was directing the same show in the same place with some of the same cast members. And would I like to come up for an after-opening-night reunion of as much of the old cast as they could get together? Well, I'd love to, I said. That show had been my very first experience on stage ever, and it was with good-natured anticipation that I climbed into my little truck a few weeks later and headed north. Well, four hours driving found me around the punch bowl with folks I hadn't seen in 20 years. And the show had been much less important to me than the people had been, a moment among a thousand moments we'd shared as friends and neighbors in the same small community, but it sure was good to have an excuse to get together. And somewhere in the middle of a bite of snickerdoodle, I heard someone shout my name, and I turned around only barely in time to prepare myself for being barreled into a happy bear hug from, from, from Julie Fish. Julie Fish, who in a former life had been my very first girlfriend. I don't know if you've been fortunate enough to have an opportunity to see your very first girlfriend after a million years, but there is always, I imagine, a great and dreadful moment when you wonder if you're going to be able to look each other in the eye. And whether or not you're able to do that, of course, depends solely, entirely, singularly 
on how you treated each other when you were sweethearts. And I'll tell you what a pleasure it was to sit around together in that crowded amphitheater. When the whole hometown is back together for an evening, the circle is pretty big. There was me and my childhood friend Jason Terry and his wife Jennifer Clark Terry and Julie Fish and Julie McCandless, for whom Randall Roper and I created an elaborate prom invitation that involved a saxophone and harmonica duet at Pizza Hut. And of course, we were all surrounded by our thousand collective kids. And you know what? There wasn't a tight-collar, throat-clearing, nervous-glancing, awkward-feeling anywhere within a hundred yards of any of us. I couldn't articulate in a thousand Sundays the great pleasure that I took in that fact. And it never for an instant occurred to me in high school that I'd find that to be such a blessing as a grown-up. And that's why I mention it here, I guess, in case there's anyone listening today who's looking for a reason to treat someone they're fond of with generosity and courtesy and reverence instead of, well, with selfishness. If you're blinded by whatever blinds people these days to the effects of whatever path you're about to take in whatever relationship you happen to find yourself in, just hear this witness. No pleasure in recent memory has been greater than the pleasure of being able to look Julie Fish in the eye at the sound of music reunion. The circle of us old friends all swapped stories of our terrific kids and terrific spouses and terrific lives until they were ready to kick us all out of the theater. That reunion was, in many ways, the happy ending, an ending written way back in the early days of the story. And I'm glad we wrote a good one because, and it's as inevitably true for you as it is for me, on some rare evening in some rare August, we have to live it. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Coming up in just a little bit, a story from Maynard Moose, the puppet storytelling companion of Willie Claflin. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films that we see, the books that we treasure, the meals that we share. And of course, the things that happen to us and the stories that we tell about them, from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations. And talking about some of the ways in which great stories get down into our lives and the shape they take once they're there is something that we love to do with friends here on the Appleseed. And I'm thrilled to be joined live here in the Appleseed studio by Bill Lepp from West Virginia in for the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. Bill, it's so great to have you with me. Always glad to be in Utah. You know, I'll tell you something. We've talked uh, about influences, but you got to think that the biggest influences on a person like yourself are just some of the people with whom you get to spend time around the kitchen table, you know. Uh, talk about some of those people. In my family, it was always up to the listener to decide what was true. Anybody telling a story was allowed to add to it or subtract yeah. whatever they wanted in good fun or to make the story better. And you as the listener could accept it or reject it, but, you know, don't say anything about it <laughs> unless you want to make it better. Right. And we got this from my gross papa, my grandfather, who I'm sure got it from his brothers and 
uncles and, and his father. Gross Papa never told the same story twice. Yeah. Every time the story was a little bit different and a little bit more exaggerated. <laughs> and when one time, so he grew up, they were German Mennonites living in Russia. Yeah. When the revolution broke out, he fought with the White Army for a short period of time, and then he had to clear out. And so it took him some years to get to America, and he went through uh, the Middle East and yeah. finally got here. So one time he told me, when I was probably seven or eight years old, that he had ridden with Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> I think uh, I had just seen the movie or something, and I believed it. I had no reason not to believe it. He yeah. was in that part of the world at that time. I was a little gullible child and he took advantage of me so i believed that until i was 14 years old and i told it uh not too long ago to a newspaper reporter who was much younger than i was and she published in the paper that my grandfather had ridden with lawrence olivier so <laughs> now we have that going yeah. for us too because if gross papa thought of that he'd have certainly added that yeah yeah so from gross papa from my uncles my cousins my aunts too to some extent um they seem to be more honest than my uncles. But I got from the very beginning of my life the freedom to lie in a story. <laughs> Again, not maliciously, yeah. but just to make the story better. Yeah. It's okay. We just, as a species, tend to make stories better <laughs> as they go along. <laughs> when we were around the table with my grandfather... As I say, it was up to the listener to decide the truth. Yeah. And what I mean by that is fairly early in your life, you realized yeah. that not everything you were hearing was true. We were not sitting in a jury yeah. where the deciding the truth being up to the listener is a whole different context. Yeah. When I take the stage, I am not telling the truth. Right. If you don't know that as the audience member, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be duplicitous. It usually says in my bio that I'm a liar. Um, but where people get confused, or if you pick up a novel mm -hmm. and you read it and there's a character named I, yeah. you know you're reading a novel. So you know it's not true. When I get up on stage and I say I, when people hear us say I, I think they assume that we're telling the truth. Yeah. And so I have people in my audience who have been greatly disappointed to find out that some of the things I've said aren't true. Sorry, he's listening now. Um, but, it, you know, so it's just, it, it's a weird context thing. So I really try and let the audience know in as many ways as possible. I will stop in the middle of a story and say, don't get too emotionally involved. Most of this is made up. You know, I let you know that, that this is happening. And, but still, people do get upset because they believe it. And, yeah. and then it's not so. And of course, the 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 world of the storytelling performance is such that uh, there are people who will assume you're not telling the truth, even if you are. Right? I mean, right? You you, you come up. I've I've come off stage after a after a after a performance and had people come up and say, "No, but is that? Tell me that's true." Is is right. is, is the phrase? Tell me that's true. Right. Well, exactly. Okay, I will. But it's there's true. you know I've been doing this for. 20 years now professionally, close yeah. to that, and been working with some of the same storytellers for years yeah. and have myself, after 10, 15 years of listening to somebody tell a certain story over and over again, 
find out that it's not true. And I, I mean, half of me is thinking, well, you should know better. But the other half of me is thinking, how could you have done that to me for all of these years? I love that person. <laughs> well, the, the, uh, I was going to say the subtle interplay of truth and lies, right? But it's not subtle at all, is it? It can be, I guess, to blow your question out of the water, uh, <laughs> because I try. Yeah. I try. I always say that my stories aren't true, but yeah. they are honest. Yeah. So I have characters who you might believe, um, and some of them are based on real people. So so let me ask after that phrase, because you, you hear a version of that phrase. You hear... You hear any number of versions of that phrase, right? When you say it's not true, but it's honest, parse that a little bit. Well, the the characters that I that are doing it in my story mm-hmm. probably aren't a hundred percent real, right? But the emotions that they're dealing with, the yeah. feelings that they're dealing with, uh, often the situations that they're dealing with, yeah, they're dealing with them the way that I, as the writer, think that these characters would honestly deal with that situation. Yeah. Uh, so I'm staying true to how I think these people that I have created would deal with the situation, yeah. which is a reflection of how members of the audience would deal with it. Um, but because these specific events didn't happen, it's not true. But yeah. again, it's an honest reaction. The other side of that is sometimes I have an idea for a story and maybe the whole thing took 20 minutes in real life. Yeah. But I have to condense it to five. Right. right. Or maybe it took five minutes in real life, but I have to extend it to 20. <laughs> so there is the honest thing that happened. Yeah. But as the storyteller, I have to fit it into a time slot. Yeah. Yeah. That's the that's the, the work of the, the competent making of fiction. Right. Right. <laughs> Bill Lepp, thanks so much for stopping by the Appleseed. Always glad to be here. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Great to share family memories with Bill Lepp. We'll be sure to have him back. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Laura Persian Rayner, a story called The Haunted House, in just a moment. I'm Sam Bain. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you. A moment ago, a conversation with the great tall tale teller Bill Lepp. And now, a story from Laura Pershin Rayner called The Haunted House. Happy to bring it to you on The Appleseed. When I was nine years old, I thought I knew everything about my mother. I knew that she sewed all her own dresses and she could fix leaky faucets. She made perfect watermelon balls and she could draw a graceful swan by beginning with just the letter S. Sometimes, when she was vacuuming the living room, she would break into one of her tap dance routines. But that spring, I found out that my mom was not exactly who she appeared to be. I was nine, and we lived in a brand-new neighborhood called Palmer Woods Manor. I don't know where the Palmer came from, but there had been a woods once. I had seen the woods and played in the woods when my parents were looking at land and making plans to build our house. But then the next time we came to visit, the trees were gone, and houses lined a brand-new street. 
Every house in the neighborhood had a perfectly square lawn and two to four children in each house, except for one. The gray brick house across the street from mine was new like all the others, but the grass in front was long and full of puffy dandelions in the spring. The windows had no shades or frilly curtains. The house was empty. Since it had been built, no children or dogs had ever lived in it. Three different sets of young couples had lived in that house. We had seen them moving in. They had their big TVs and toasters and plants and boxes, and they would smile at all of us kids as we stood there watching them, schlepping from the U-Haul into the house. They would live there for a few months, never making a peep, and then poof, they were gone. We had never seen any of them leave. That house was haunted for sure. Now the house stood empty when Linda Mullman, my new best friend, moved in around the corner. Linda's house was interesting because her parents were college professors and they ate things like Welsh rarebit and steak tartare and other foods to avoid when invited over for dinner. Her tall, thin mother smoked long brown cigarettes and had more books in her bedroom than anyone I had ever met. Her father was a handsome, quiet man with a German accent, and the hallway leading up the stairs was filled with black-and-white photographs of all the family members he had loved and lost in the war. Because both her parents worked, Linda's house was a wonderful place to play after school. Her teenage sister, who was supposed to watch over us, locked herself in her room and played Moody Blues records so loud she didn't even know we were there. Every day, Linda and I would play our favorite game called A Wrinkle in Slime. We would bring bowls from the kitchen into Linda's bathroom upstairs. We would lock the door, take out all the ingredients from the cupboards, and pretend to be scientists inventing a cure for a horrible disease called Ungablazen. This disease might destroy all of mankind, but Linda was the brilliant Ursula, and I was the determined orphan Loretta Mason Potts. I had lost my mother when she had succumbed to the dread disease. Linda and I would take out mysterious liquids from medicine bottles and perfume bottles and other containers, and we would mix them into the bowls to see what would happen. We had already learned the hard way that combinations of certain cleansers were not to be messed with because it hurt our throats and made us cough when we mixed them together. Shoe polish was great mixed with shaving cream, but it left a terrible stain in the bowl. And we were very sorry the time we brought mud up from the garden to stir in the bowl with cornstarch and water. After we sprayed it with hairspray, it was so stiff, it was stuck to the bowl forever, and we had to throw the whole mess into the trash. Then one day, we opened the cupboard to find a new treasure. A large brown medicine bottle. Surely it would cure the dread disease when mixed with a little licamade and maybe some crushed aspirin. But we read the prescription and we saw that it was acne medicine for Linda's sister. 
to be taken internally. When we unscrewed the top and poured a little bit into a bowl, we knew we had something even greater than a cure for the disease Ungoblazen. We had a perfect idea for the haunted house. You see, the medicine was exactly the same color as blood. We made our plan. We put the cap back on the top of that brown bottle. We put the amazing new discovery into a paper sack, and we went to the haunted house. We looked up and down the street. It was a cloudy, cool day in the spring, and none of the kids were playing outside. We walked to the haunted house, and Linda slipped the bottle out of the bag, took off the top, turned the bottle upside down, and very carefully and slowly let the dark red liquid drip onto the pavement. From the front stoop, down the walk, over the sidewalk, down the driveway, and we left a big glob of blood right near the sewer grate in the street. As luck would have it, the next day was a sunny, beautiful spring day, and all of the kids were playing outside after school. We waited for Bobby Katz, the neighborhood loudmouth, to come out of his house with his friend Mike, and then we walked over to the haunted house, and I pointed down to the front walk, and I let out a scream. All of the kids came running over. Bobby Cat said, Look, someone got stabbed last night in the haunted house. And he struggled down the walk, clutching his neck. And look over here, he climbed right into the sewer. How do you know it was a he? Maybe a girl got stabbed, huh? Said Tracy, the tomboy who lived next door. Susie Strickstein said, But was it a real person or a ghost person? I thought only ghost persons lived in haunted houses. And then everyone started screaming and yelling at the same time. Linda and I were having too much fun to notice that Bobby Katz had disappeared for a minute. And when he came back, he had his mother, Bernice Katz, She took one look at the blood-splattered sidewalk and went into the house to call the police. That's when Linda and I thought it might be a good time to go. We took off running, but before we could turn the corner right near Linda's house, we heard Mrs. Katz yell, Girls, come back here now. The officer will need to talk to you. We looked at each other. Ursula, the brilliant, and Loretta Mason Potts, the determined orphan, we put our chins up and returned to the scene of the crime. By that time, the police car was just pulling up in front of the haunted house. As the car pulled up, my mother walked out of our house and headed over to the now large crowd that was gathering. The policeman walked up and down, He squatted to touch the dried liquid and even put his nose on the sidewalk to smell it. Everybody was quiet. I was having trouble breathing, and I could see that Linda's bottom lip was trembling. It's nothing, said the officer. It's just some dog blood. Go home and make sure your animals are okay. And he got in his car and drove off. Linda and I started to smile at each other in relief. We knew we had barely escaped prison, and now we were free with our secret. But just then, my mother, who had been watching us closely with her hands on her hips, 
in front of everyone, said, Laura, Linda, spit it out. What do you think you're up to? How did you make this concoction? Everyone looked at us. The brilliant and brave scientists who only wanted to save the world and have a little fun once in a while. And I don't know how it happened, but Linda and I both started talking at once, and then we started to cry and tell my mom everything right in front of Bobby Katz and the whole neighborhood. Well, my mom marched us up to our house to call Linda's mother. And after Linda's mom came over, she lit up one of those long brown cigarettes and listened to the whole story. She lifted one eyebrow and said, That was expensive pimple medicine. Well, my mother went to fill a bucket with sudsy water. Linda Mulman and I walked quietly down the driveway with water sloshing in the bucket and rags and a scrub brush under our arms. We knew we were headed to hours of hard labor to clean up the mess. But just as we got to the bottom of the driveway, we heard an explosion of laughter coming from the house. We heard my mom say, Can you believe our daughters fooled that busybody, Bernice Katz? Linda's mom said, I always told you they were smart. And they laughed and laughed. Linda and I looked at each other. At that moment, we knew that our mothers were not exactly who they appeared to be. Laura Persian Rayner with The Haunted House here on The Apple Seed. And now, a fractured fairy tale from Maynard Moose, the puppet storytelling companion of the Bay Area storyteller Willie Claflin. This is a fractured fairy tale called The Bully Goat Grim. You know the story, The Billy Goat's Gruff. Well, you'll recognize that story down in this rendition somewhere. But here's Maynard Moose on The Apple Seed. I'd like to bring a guest teller out. If you have not met Maynard before, he's the only Native American moose on the circuit at this point. He tells traditional mother moose stories. Actually receives them directly through his antlers. I met him in 1975 in Blue Hill, Maine. And I'm going to have him share a traditional moose tale with you this evening. (laughs) I would like to tell a story of the bully goat Grimm. (laughs) Once upon the time there was a large and obnoxious bully goat Grimm, twice more large than normal, having bulked up on wild tuber root in his youth, which, as you may understand, contains an abundance of natural steroids. So he grew to a large and ungainly thigh, and and as if that were not enough, he suffered from random hostility syndrome. (laughs) And his favorite thing to do was whenever he saw a cute little furry forest animal, he would lower his big bully goat head, g'dump, 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 pow, over the tops of the trees would go the little furry forest animal and crash down on the other side into a pile of bracken, and pretty soon all the little forest mammals had little slings and bandages and crutches. 
and, and some of them had X's for eyeballs. <laughs> well, pretty soon when all the little gerbils and little, little chipmunks and wombats and stuff are all injured and, and were laid up in their little holes, the bully goat decide to go to the upland pastures where he have heard there's a wild variety of succulent grasses growing there in gay profusion. So he take the low road, which go over the bridge, now over the river, now underneath the bridge was a family of trolls. There was a mommy troll with three heads, a daddy troll with two heads, and a little baby troll with only one head, but they loved him anyway. Because you should be grateful for what you were given. <laughs> Well, so now this was a happy troll family. They liked to wallow around in slops and mud and garbage and every Wednesday would go to the dump and bring home large and useless rusted and rotten objects and had a large pile of garbages outside their house and every night they would stay up late having rude noises contests and sleep in the next morning. <laughs> So anyway, they were sleeping in as usual when suddenly overhead trip trap trip trap come the bully goat grim. Well, the daddy troll wake up. Who dat trip trapping on my bridge? And a large and dreadful voice bellow down from above. Beware, beware the bully goat grim. Nobody better not mess with him. Then trip trap trip trap off go the bully goat grim. Well, the daddy troll first head on the head on the left. It spoke first. It said, "Um, he do that again. I go and punch him in the nose." You can't do that. Say his other head. It's a stupid idea. That's who are you calling stupid? Say the first head. I just mean say the second head. You with something like the bully goat grim. You cannot just punch him in the nose. You need a plan. You can't just do something stupid like that. You call me stupid one more time, say the first head, I go and mash your nose out the back of your face. <laughs> yeah, well you just try that, say the second head, and before you know, a left and a right, pow, pow, and the daddy troll knocked himself unconscionable. <laughs> you see that, say the mommy troll to the baby, you see that? Suda, baby, you, you better pay detention or you'll wind up like your father, unconscious as a muffin. You better learn to get along with yourself. <laughs> and so the next morning, trip, trap, trip, trap, over the bridge, come the bully goat grim. This time the mommy troll wake up first. Who dat trip trapping on my bridge, say the mommy troll. And a dark and dreadful voice bellow down from above. Beware, beware, the bully goat grim. Nobody better not meth with him. And trip, trap, trip, trap, off go the bully goat grim. Now the mommy troll's heads were named Bertha, Gladys, and Louise. <laughs> I think we had better talk this over, said Bertha. We better put our heads together. So first, they make themselves three cups of tea and they sit down to process. <laughs> I think, said Bertha, if I may go first. Certainly, said Gladys and Louise. 
I think, said Berthold, uh, we should display he is probably just acting out to get detention, and we should explain to him that all of God's creatures are supposed to get along in harmonies and ecologically on a sane on this planet Earth, and everybody should love one another. Well, said Gladys, I, I, I'm very interested in your input, but I myself think he will not listen to reason. I think we should bake him a great big chocolate cake. I think that we tell him if he promised to be good, we give him the chocolate cake. <laughs> well, said Louise, I think there is lots of relative merit in both of your proposals. But I myself think he will listen neither to reason nor bribery. I think we need to build a big trap door in the middle of the bridge. When the bully goat come, we pull on the rope, sploop, he go into the river below and float away. <laughs> well, said Bertha, I think perhaps since there is merit in all of our proposals, we should take the best aspects of each plan, and in a synergistic fashion, perhaps we can put them together. And so they talked on and on and on. Until one by one they fell asleep because <laughs> the effect of too much process is soporific. <laughs> mm -hmm. And early the next morning, trip, trap, trip, trap, over the bridge come the bully goat grin. Well, this time Baby Troll wake up first. Who that trip trapping on my bridge, say Baby Troll. And a dark and dreadful voice bellow down from above. Beware, beware, the bully goat grim. Nobody better not mess with him. And trip, trap, trip, trap, off go the bully goat grim. Hmm, say the Baby Troll. Nobody better not mess. That's a double negative. <laughs> Because mm -hmm. he had been homeschooled by Bertha, Gladys, and Louise. <laughs> if nobody better not mess with him, that means everybody ought to mess with him. <laughs> I gotta figure out how to mess with the bully goat grim, and all of a sudden, a light bulb go on over his head. Pling! <laughs> now look at that, say baby, throw the light bulb over my head. Mom! So the mommy troll come, and inside the light bulb was a pillow and a parachute. So they dig through the pile of the trash and the garbage from the garbage dump and find a moldy old pillow and strap it onto the behind of the baby troll. And the mommy troll sew some sheets together for to make a parachute. And they strap that on his back. And the next morning, when the bully goat grim trip, trap, trip, trap, come over the bridge, the baby troll is waiting in the middle of the bridge. Beware, beware, the bully goat grim, say the bully goat. But the baby troll stick his thumbs in his ears and cross his eyes and wiggle his fingers and make the rudest noise he know how to make. <laughs> well, a little thundercloud appear over the bully goat said, and he lower his bony bully goat head and gadump, 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 gadump across the bridge toward the baby troll. But at the last second, <laughs> baby troll turn around, stick the pillow behind up in the air, and poof! Up into the air go the baby troll, whee! Up through the tops of the clouds, pop! And at the apogee of his trajectory, <laughs> he pulled the ripcord and pop! Opened the parachute and he flowed gently back down to the ground, saying hello to the various strata of birds and bats and butterflies and buggies, and coming to rest with a soft thump on the mossy bank below. 
Well, news about what the baby troll done done, it spread like wildfire through the forest, and pretty soon all the little amunals had pillows and parachutes of their own. <laughs> and they were making rude noises at the bully goat grim. And gadump, gadump, poo, up into the air, but they did not crash down into the pile of bracken, and there were no more slings and bandages and axes for eyeballs, only saying hello to the birds and a strata of various buggies, and they had a wonderful time and lined up for dinnertainment, and now there is nothing worse than having random hostility syndrome and being unable to injure anyone. It was extremely depressing to the bully goat Grimm, so he slunk away. He slunk and slunk until he was completely away. And the amulets put away their pillows and parachutes, but they keep them in the closet just in case. So my advice to you is keep a pillow and a parachute in your closet just in case. But above all, the moral of this story, learn to recognize a double negative. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your detention. Goodness. <laughs> Maynard Moose and Willie Claflin on the stage of the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Let's wrap up with a little piece of cowboy poetry. This is called The Ride from the great cowboy poet Joe Harrington from a collection called Shalico. Here's The Ride on the Appleseed. Slim McGee manned the line shack way out on the southwest side. He was good as gold, plain as dirt, and tough as sun-baked hide. He never cared too much for town or the pretties on display. He just lived a plain and simple life, content in every way. One day he's headed for that line shack when the boss's kid appeared. Tom was riding some strange contraption that was raucous, fast, and weird. It would buzz and whine and moan a bit, then make a sort of growl. It sounded like a drunk mosquito in heating on the prowl. Slim pulled up short and watched, amazed as Tom reined that iron-clad beast, then spurred it to a deadly run like lightning, squeezed and greased. Why, well, he'd top out hills and jump ravines like there's never even there, and then leave the ground in a cloud of dust and go sailing through the air. Then Tom waved and saw him, for he could even take a breath. That kid slid in fast beside him and scared him half to death. Why, howdy, Slim, how you been? What you think of my new ride? It'll outwork any horse we got, he said, beaming wide with pride. Slim scratched his jaw, he cocked his hat and said, Well, what you call that critter, Tom? Said, oh, this here's an ATV, but I call it my rocket bomb. Come on, Slim, try it out. Take it yonder through my course. I guarantee you'll love it so you won't ride another horse. Well, Slim got down, eyed that thing, figuring he just might need a priest as he stared with consternation at that one-eyed four-wheeled beast. Tommy jeered, come on, Slim, try it. Right here's where you put your feet. So with cautious trepidation, Slim eased down in the seat. Then Tommy rattled off instructions so fast they's just a blur. Well, what makes this critter go, Slim said. Do I goose it with my spurs? Well, Tommy grinned a bit and chuckled. Now that kid had mischief in his eye. Said, no, you use your spurs to stop it. You twist this to make it fly. Now, 
Now, hold on, kid. I've, I've reconsidered, Slim said with a twinge of fear, and he swung his leg to dismount as Tommy slammed it down in gear. What happened next is legendary and told at both's expense. I'll try to tell you best I can, but it's not easy to condense. That thing jerked a bit and roared to life, then it reared up on two back wheels and caught old Slim unseated and towed him, dragging by his heels. Before he could blink, he'd lost his hat, his mouth was full of dirt, and he was bouncing sideways down the trail, losing half his shirt. While well, he gagged and spit and fought for life, then pulled up in the seat with a swell of satisfaction. He'd pulled off a cowboy feet. See, a lesser man had plumb be dead, but he didn't have a scratch. But before he could hardly stoke his pride, he hit a cactus patch. That stuff snagged him and stuck in deep as that quad took wings to fly while he plucked out thorns and prayed for land, but all he saw was sky. Then Slim let out a girly scream that shamed him to the core. Why, he'd never made a noise like that in 60 years or more. He'd never blinked at danger from a bronc or wild bull ride, and he'd stare down anything that growled. But this had him terrified. Well, by now, he's digging in them spurs, doing everything he could, but if anything, he's going faster. Those spurs just did no good. Brush blurred past in a streak of green and stung like a leather quirt, and every time he hit that seat, something else would hurt. Then parts started flying off that brute and sailing through the breeze. Bugs were plastered to his teeth and quills poked out his knees. About that time he hit the rivers, he circled back around, but that infernal beast just kept on trucking. Pretty near made him drown. Mud was slinging high as trees. He fishtailed down the bank and saw Tom bowled over laughing and knew is all a prank. Why, that sorry rascal kid, he thought, as his nose swole up and bled, he'd teach that boy a lesson if it killed him stone cold dead. Well, he bounced off half the trees in sight and took out the pasture fence, and with parts still flying off that quad, the ride got more intense. Cows were scattered, his horse had freaked, but now Tommy's tune had changed. He screamed, Stop it, Slim, for you tear it up! What? Was that kid deranged? He had no prayer of stopping, because by now his spurs were shot. There's quad parts scattered to the wind, and his shorts were at a knot. Then one more time he made a loop and plowed through a grove of trees, up and over, then upside down. Slim was dangling by his knees. That quad just hung there, screaming as Tom ran up to shut it off. Slim climbed down, stretched up straight, and made a kind of scoff. Tommy was almost crying as he stared at what remained. But Slim's knees were weak. He felt sick and knew his knotted shorts were stained. But he sucked it up and made a show. He had his cowboy pride. He'd show that kid his made a grit. Didn't matter, he'd almost died. But then Slim saw that boy was fraught and tried to do young Tom some good. He offered him his neck rag and tried to comfort best he could. Said, cheer up, Tommy. I liked it fine, so don't fret or feel remorse. But till that thing can learn to stop, 
I think I'll keep my horse. The Ride, a piece of cowboy poetry shared with you by Joe Harrington. That's from a collection called Shotlico. We've swung the pendulum pretty wide on today's episode of The Appleseed. Everything from stuff like that that you just heard from Joe Harrington to fractured fairy tales from Maynard Moose. A pleasure to bring you all the stories today. Find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. Hi, this is Sam again. If you're new to the show, we're grateful that you're with us and hope that you and your family enjoyed today's stories. And we'll be back on the next episode with another helping of tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal tales, historical tales, and more, told by terrific storytellers from all over the world. We've been doing it since 2013, and we hope to be doing it for many, many years to come. The whole Appleseed family is dedicated to that. Now, if you like the Appleseed, you'll enjoy some of the other programs produced by BYU Radio, talking here about the Lisa Show with Lisa Valentine Clark and her co-host, Richie T., a show that will brighten your day with all sorts of terrific conversations. You'll love Top of Mind with the Gracie Award-winning host, Julie Rose, conversation about topics of the day presented in a way that will make you think and stimulate conversation around your dinner table, and Constant Wonder with Marcus Smith, bringing you every day a reminder to be awestruck by something you never thought about before. There's something for everyone in your home, and they're all available as podcasts from BYU Radio. I'm Sam Payne, and we'll see you next time on the Appleseed. Thank you.